Genesis chapter 10, please. Genesis chapter 10. Let's pray and we'll get started. As always, Lord, you teach, we listen, let your spirit guide and direct. And Lord, those that couldn't make it out tonight due to the weather, due to the temperature, I pray you bless them, take care of them. I just thank you for the opportunity to be here in your name. Amen. Genesis 10 changes direction here a little bit. We've been talking a lot about Noah the last few weeks and the flood. And we ended our study on Noah last week. What you have here in Genesis 10 is a chapter of genealogy. Now, that's really easy to look at this, and I believe, if I remember correctly, there's about 70 names mentioned, and they're names that are hard to pronounce, we don't know what they mean, and we've never read them before. So it's very easy to skip over those names and just say, okay, I get it, let's move on. It's important to stop and realize God is putting this in here for a reason, and I love these chapters, like chapter 10, because I look at it as, Lord, what are you trying to tell us? So we're going to stop and look and say, Lord, what are you trying to tell us here with these names and what they mean and represent? And then it introduces us right into chapter 11. Chapter 11 is one of those famous stories in the Bible, the Tower of Babel, which then is a bridge for us to get introduced to Abraham. So we're not going to get into Abraham this week. We'll get into Abraham next week. But we're really close to getting into those famous Genesis stories of Abraham and Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel, etc. But this genealogy here in chapter 10, couple quick things. And if you look at the beginning of your sheets there, if you picked one up, we just left up a couple of the notes about the genealogies that we mentioned back from Genesis chapter 5. You have to remember that these people were living quite longer than what we live today. And so there's a lot of overlapping. And I just picked a couple of the highlights there. Noah was born a few years after Seth died. If you remember Seth, Seth was the son of Adam and Eve. The reason I bring this up is Noah was just a few years removed from knowing somebody who was known Adam who then knew God. It's quite amazing when you stop and you think about it. Abraham and Noah overlap. So keep that in the back of your mind as we go through these genealogies. Abraham and Noah overlap. Shem and Jacob overlap. Which means that it's possible that Noah and Abraham could have had a conversation. So when we talk about Abraham... Abraham could have talked to Noah who could have told you, hey, this is what it was really like to be on the ark. This is what it was really like to be on the flood. And even now going past Abraham, and we're getting all the way down to Jacob, Shem, who was on the ark with Noah, Shem and Jacob overlap. So it's amazing to see how all these genealogies now overlap and these people can stop and tell the stories of what it was like for creation, for the ark, etc. And it's an amazing picture. The reason I bring this all together, if Abraham and Noah overlap, and Noah almost overlaps with Seth, you can see how close it is to get a connection from Adam all the way back to Noah, to Jacob, to Israel. It's an amazing picture. So keep that in the back of your mind. Now what you see here in verses 1-32 through of Genesis chapter 10 are the three sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. And God gave them the command to go out and multiply and refill the earth. Real quickly, we're not going to go through every name, but Jepheth's names are the ones that are mentioned first. Verse 1, it says, Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, and the sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Jepheth were Gomer, Magar, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. And the sons of Gomer, and then it kind of continues on. Key point, verse 5. From these, the coastland people of the Gentiles are separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. So, Jepheth, his descendants, ended up settling Europe and parts of Asia. So keep that in the back of your mind. If you go actually study out some of these names here, Gomer, throughout history in verse 2, that represents Germany. History can back this up. Magog has always been another name for Russia. 
You get into Javan and Tarshish there. You start seeing Greek as Javan. And Tarshish here in a little bit, that represents parts of Spain. So it's neat to see. People stop and they say, well, how did the people get from here to get to there? The descendants of Jephthah are the ones that went over into central areas of Europe, and they're the ones that settled that. So what does that mean for us? Well, for most of us, that means we're a descendant of Jephthah. Because that's the Gentile lands there that went over to Europe. And you see that there in verse 5. The Gentiles were on the coastland people. That's what it was. So, that's the first group. Now, Ham, he had four sons. His area was Canaan, Africa, and parts of Asia there. Now, Ham gets a lot of attention here. Because there's a lot of things going on. You see Ham there had his sons of Cush, Mizoram, Put, and Canaan. Canaan obviously rings a bell for you because Canaan is the area where Israel ends up settling. Canaan is the area where the Jews battle the Canaanites. If you remember from our study last week, Ham was cursed. So since Ham was cursed, the people of Canaan were cursed, and they were this group of people that caused problems for Israel for years, and God had to deal with them and judge them. Now, what we're going to do here is pick out a little bit. Look at verse 8. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Verse 10, in the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Canaan in the land of Shneer. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Erechala, and Reznah between Nineveh and Kela. That is the principal city, etc. Now a lot of those names mean nothing to you. And that's fine. We don't really know a lot about them. But there's a couple points we have to take here. We need to talk about this guy, Nimrod. Nimrod is the first real bad guy. He's not a good guy. The phrase right here where it says that he was a mighty one on the earth and a mighty hunter before the Lord. Most people believe when you study out that phrase, hunter before the Lord, in the original Hebrew, it means he was a hunter of men. This guy was a guy that wanted to build a kingdom. And that's exactly what he did. His wording there is he went and he built a kingdom. He wasn't interested in serving God. He was interested in serving himself. And if you got in the way of Nimrod, it sounds like he'll hunt you down. His name actually means rebellion. That's what his name actually means. Now think about that, moms. You named your kid Rebellion right from the beginning. I don't know what type of pregnancy it was, but obviously it was a tough one. So Nimrod wants to build his own kingdom. Now this is an important point, because what did we say last week? The descendants of Ham were going to be cursed. And we talked about last week, did God curse them? So therefore, since God cursed them, they became bad? Or did God look ahead and say, listen, I know these people are going to cause problems, and I know they're going to be an issue, so we need to take care of this. Nimrod shows what happens when you come out of a line that's not godly. Now, that doesn't mean just because you were born into a godly home and you had godly parents that you're going to make godly choices through all of your life. That's obviously not true. But starting out in a godly home... It's a great way to start. It really is. Nimrod came from the line of Ham, who already was behind, if you will. Their dad, um, their dad was an issue last week. If you remember correctly, back in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 9, he wasn't a great guy to start with, and you can see that being passed down. As we mentioned last week, a lot of the descendants here of Ham are the Jebusites and the Canaanites. If you jump ahead to verse 15, it says, Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn in Heth. Look at verse 16. The Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archetite, and the Sinite. Those names may not mean a lot to you, but if you study out the Old Testament, Jebusites, Amorites, and Hivites... They were the bad guys of the Old Testament. Ham's line is a problem, and Nimrod is an example of that. So look at your sheet here real quick. His name means rebellion. 
He was a hunter, a hunter of men. And look at that word. He wanted to build a kingdom. And look at the two nations that he built. Verse 11, Assyria. And verse 10, Babel, which becomes Babylon. Guess what Assyria and Babylon do? They're the ones that destroy Israel. So in 722 B.C., Assyria destroys the northern tribes of Israel. 586 B.C., Babylon destroys Judah. Now, we could have looked back on last week's chapter and say, okay, God's a mean, nasty God. He cursed the line of Ham. He said, these people are bad. They need to be cursed. And we could have stopped there and said, oh, God. We kind of jumped at the gun here a little bit. The Lord knew. The Lord knew that this line of Ham was going to end up being a problem. This guy Nimrod... Listed by name is going to be a problem. The areas that he builds up, Assyria and Babylon, are the ones that thousands of years later come back to bite Israel. God knows what he's doing. Quick application point for that. If God says something's wrong, it's wrong. It's wrong because he knows that that's not going to bring value to our life. He knows that's going to cause harm to us. So when I look in the Bible and God says that that action's wrong probably means it's wrong. If God says that that action is acceptable and right, it's probably going to do something that helps me. We need to trust the Lord when it comes to that. He knew the line of Ham was going to be an issue, and so therefore he warned it, he cursed it, and we can see it actually happening here. So that's the line of Jephthah, that's the line of Ham. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments, before we get to the line of Shem? Ryan. Yeah, this is no, yeah, what happened is Babel, that area individually becomes Babylon. That's what it ends up becoming. That's the name of it. Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar and Nimrod would be thousands of years apart in history. Yeah, because I think there was an old Babylonian Empire with the first Nebuchadnezzar, and then the second Nebuchadnezzar, he just took the name, but it had no relation to it. Yeah, yeah, there's quite a difference here. But it's interesting to note that these things are the seeds that are planted that do become these other kingdoms, though, that God uses as judgment and also obviously become a problem to Israel, too. Anybody else got anything before we move on? Rose. You said about right and wrong. Uh, this is, there's no Bible verse for this, or I think there should be, but it says, <laughs> it says, you know, right is right even if no one is doing it, mm-hmm. and wrong is wrong even if everyone is doing it. Yeah. And that's a good way to put it. So often in our society today, we judge right on wrong by the majority of people. And there are certain things in the world today that is considered acceptable that the majority of people consider acceptable. Just because the majority of people say it's okay doesn't make it okay. And it goes to the flip side. Just because there's a minority of people that say that this is right, it is right. Some things are just right. There are just values that God has ordained that are right. And you see that as this kind of goes on in this lesson. You see the sin nature of man continue to creep in here. It's just an issue again and again. Anybody else have anything here before we move on? All right, so now let's introduce ourselves to Shem. Shem is the area of, uh, he had five sons, Middle East. Shem is the line of the Jews. That's what we need to look at here. And you can see where Shem kind of starts in verse 22. Now, some important points here that we need to mention about Shem's family is especially verse 25. It says, To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. I just bring this out because of a couple things. First off, the name Peleg means division. Most people believe that it was during Peleg's time frame, or lifespan, I should say, that chapter 11 happened of the Tower of Babel, which we'll get to that in a little bit. I mention Eber because if you study out this guy's name Eber, it's where we get the name Hebrews from. Eber means something to the effect of across the other way or from the other side. So that the, these Jews were called Hebrews 
because they were from the other side, from the line of Eber. So if you've ever wondered where the name Hebrews comes from, why the Jews are called the Hebrews, is generally most people believe it's because they were descended of Eber and they crossed from the other side. And that's kind of where the subject of the Hebrews come from. But you see with Shem's family here, and what happens is God uses this as a stepping stone now. We've introduced Jepheth's line. We've introduced Ham's line. Now Shem's line takes center stage. Because his line is mentioned just a little bit right there, verse 31. These were the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages and their lands, according to their nations. And these are the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations and their nations. And from these nations were divided on the earth after the flood. We have a quick little story that takes up nine verses in chapter 11. And then you see in verse 10, we have a detailed description of Shem's line which takes us then all the way to Abraham in chapter 12, which then takes us through the rest of it. So we'll get to that here. So chapter 10, a genealogy. It's easy to skip over that stuff, but this genealogy sets the scene for us. Jephthah's line moves into Europe, if you will. Ham's line moves into the area of Canaan and Asia and Africa. Shem's line moves into the Middle East. This is where we get the different nations that we have today. You can see in Jephthah's line, you can see the beginnings of Germany, etc., this is important information as we kind of study this out. And you also see in Ham's line problems starting with Nimrod. Now, this builds up to chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, this is kind of interesting, because if this story did happen, according to verse 25, when Peleg was there, you can see how quickly this happened after the flood. What was going on is they were all together, and they kind of just stayed all together. So they kind of just this huge mass of people that are kind of staying together. They get to this nice plane and they say, hey, let's do something big. And what are we going to do? Verse 4, we're going to build a tower that goes up to the heavens because we're going to stick together. And we're going to make a name for ourselves. And I find this very interesting. God's response, verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one. And they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us now go down and therefore confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Verses 6 and 7 is not God feeling threatened. I need to make this perfectly clear. What God is saying is for their good, for the good of them, them being together, it's going to cause problems. Anything they put their mind to, they're going to be able to do. Once again, this is not a threat to the Lord. This is good parenting. You know, when we first built our house that we have now, we had two kids. And then we had three, and then we had four, and now we have five. Okay, so what happened was, is we had the, when we first moved over there, Elias and Judy each had their own bedroom. Okay, well then now we had three kids. So Kenan had his own room, and Elias and Judah then shared a room. Then we had four kids, and we had Layden. So Layden then had the baby's room, and then Elias, Judah, and Kenan were all in one room. Then we had Tyrus. So now Elias, Judah, Kenan, and Layden are all in one room, and Tyrus had his own room. You never put four boys in one room. It's just not smart. We had our own Tower of Babel moment. Whatever they would put their mind to do, they could do. I was not threatened by them. I was just scared. Because when they're together like that, you don't know what's going to happen. So what happened is this last year, Mark came over and we remodeled. We had a two-car uh, garage, and we turned one of the bays of the garage into another room. So now we have two in one room, two in another room, and one by himself. 
because we needed the space to do that. Every now and then the boys say, Dad, can we all sleep together? I say no. (laughs) And I'm not exaggerating. Every time they all sleep together, there's blood. There's just blood. I don't know what happens, but it always happens. So I see the Tower of Babel, and I don't see God being threatened. I see God saying, this isn't good. This is not good. We need to separate them. Now, if you look at your sheets, look what we said here. Man's goal. What was man's goal? Verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. That's man's goal. What was God's goal? Go back to Genesis 9-1. Fill the earth. See, this is an ongoing battle for thousands of years. God says, do this. Man says, I want to do this. God said, eat whatever tree you want. Stay away from the tree of knowledge. Adam and Eve said, I'll eat. Whatever happens, man seems to want to buck the system. So part of the way that God scattered everybody is doing this whole language thing. If anybody that's ever traveled abroad, anybody that's ever been in any major metropolitan area, you understand the limitations of language. You completely understand how difficult that is. Imagine the world having one tongue. It would be kind of an amazing thing if you would. God says everybody being on the same page language-wise, instead of that being a blessing, that's actually going to cause a problem. So I need to scatter this, and that's what he does. I want to stress this to the point of being repetitious. It's not that God was threatened by them. They're not going to build a tower to heaven. He's saying this is not good for everybody to be together. My command, fill the earth. Your idea, make a name for ourselves. Boy, is that not a picture of mankind We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. We want to call wrong, right. We want to say that this is acceptable and good. We want to parent a certain way. We want to live a certain way. We want to do things a certain way. God says it's not right. So God comes down, confuses the language. I think that would be a fascinating thing to see. All of a sudden, because we we can't picture this. you got to remember, we're about, um, let me do my quick math here. We're, what, maybe 2,200, 2,500 years past creation at this point? So for 2,000 plus years, everybody had the same language. Everybody had the same language. It's only been for about 4,000 years that there's been this different language thing. God said, it's time to do it. So what do they do? Verse 7, come let us go down there. And they confuse them. Verse 8, the Lord scatters them. And what's the name of it now? Babel. Now, Babel originally meant bab L. Gateway to God or, or uh, gate of God. Babel then now became synonymous with confusion. So what happens is this. This is making a quick point here. If you try to build your own gateway to God, what's going to happen? You're going to get confused. You, you can't do it. I mean, go back to verse 6 one more time. You can't build a tower to heaven. You can't make a name for yourself. You can't hide from God's plan in verse 4. That's what they're trying to do. Let's build a tower to heaven. Can't be done. Let's make a name for yourself. No, let's make a name for God. Let's keep ourselves from being scattered abroad. No, let's not do that. Let's be obedient to the Lord. Now, we could look at this and say, once again, mean, nasty God. I don't look at this mean, nasty God. I look at this as actually grace and mercy. God could have said, you know what? I wasn't dealing with this with the flood. I'm not dealing with this now. I'm going to kill you all and start over again. And grace and mercy, he didn't. And in fact, if you look at it, what's one of the purposes of the church now? What do you have on the day of Pentecost? You almost have the reverse, Tower of Babel. Because on the day of Pentecost, everybody's speaking in tongues, understanding each other. It's almost like God's saying, now we can bring unity to the world through what? Jesus Christ. 
Faith. Yeah, and that's a good way to put it too. And I think that's what, what the Day of Pentecost there is representing: is that there can be all these different languages and nations, but everybody can be united, united, especially in Christ Jesus. And that's the key thing. Um, you know, we have something, and I'm not trying to get political here. We have something in New York called the United Nations, and obviously that is not uniting the nations. Never has, never will. The true uniting of the nations is going to come when Jesus Christ returns and sets up His kingdom on this earth. Christ is the uniting fact. And so, yes, there is this babble, confusion, gateway to God. It's interesting, day of Pentecost, that there now can be a uniting in Christ Jesus. And that's the beautiful picture of the world. Even though I may not speak the languages of people in other countries, I can be a brother or sister in Christ to them through Christ Jesus. And I think that's what's important. And what do we always say out here? Whenever you see judgment, there's also a picture of grace. This is not God being mean. This is God fulfilling His plan. This is God spreading people out. This is God doing verse 8. The Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. This is the Lord moving and working. Verse 9, repeating, there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. That was God's plan. That's what God wanted to do. Look at your sheet here. Look at that verse in Proverbs 19.21. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel that will stand. Oh, this happens all the time out here. Somebody will call me up and they'll say, um, Pastor James, I'm going to be doing this. And I usually say something like, oh, okay, that, that sounds interesting. And if it sounds way off, I usually say, have you prayed about it? And sometimes they're honest and say, no, but it was such a good opportunity, I couldn't say no. And I always think to this verse in Proverbs 19, 21, you have a lot of plans in your heart, but is it really the Lord's counsel? And I'm just going to tell you right now, this is how I handle If I run into somebody who I feel is making a decision based in the flesh and not in the Lord, and I feel like they're off on it, I usually just simply ask them, is this where the Lord's leading you to do? If they say yes, that's a huge statement to say, yes, I feel the Lord is leading me to do this. They're accountable to God for that. If they say, well, I don't know, then it's a great opportunity to simply say, well, it sounds like you need to go pray about it some more. Because... There are many plans in a man's heart. Have you ever met somebody It's just a, a jumping from plan to plan? Oh my goodness, I know people like that. They're going to move here and do this job, and then they're going to move here and do this job, and then they're going to do this, and they're going to do this, and you want to just take them, sit them down, strap them in a chair, and say, just pray. Because right now, you have many plans in your heart. Many plans. I mean, I, I know some people that, my goodness, every time you talk to them, it's a different job, it's a different house, it's a different whatever. Sometimes it's a different boyfriend. It's a different girlfriend. It's a different... And you just want to stop and say, is this where the Lord is leading you? Please go with me to James uh, 4 as we finish this up. James 4. What the Tower of Babel is showing us is that we as a human race have an idea that we want to do. We think it sounds good. We think it makes sense. We think it works. And God says, it doesn't line up with my plan. And here's the catch, folks, as you go to James 4. If it doesn't line up with God's plan, you're the one that's wrong. See, so often we have a tendency to think that this this deal between God and us, where we each have equal say. 
We don't. I have the free will to reject God's plan. We were doing devotions the other day with the boys, and the subject came up of God's plan being the best plan. And Elias asked me, my oldest, and said, well, what happens? What happens if I don't do God's plan? And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, what happens? I said, it won't be the best for your life. He goes, I know, I know. He goes, but is, is God going to judge me? Is he going to destroy me? I said, well, no. I said, it's just not going to be the best for you. So then he said, so if I do my own thing and not God's, it's still going to be okay. I said, it's not going to be okay. I said, buddy, you're not getting this. It's not God's best for you. See, what happens is some of us out here do our own thing. And you know what? It kind of works out. We take that job without really praying about it. That's not really bad. But God had something possibly even better than that. You know, we find this person and we build a relationship with them. What happens if that's not who the Lord had for us? Well, God can still use it and work with it. But there's something about God's best. And that's one of the phrases I use out here with people. As I say to them, I just want God's best for you. And I don't know if this is God's best for you. Look at James 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Have you ever run into somebody like that? They got their life figured out. We're going to go here, I'm going to work here, we're going to move here, we're going to do this. Verse 14, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. I've seen people change jobs, change houses, change huge life decisions, not covered in prayer. And now I don't mean to be judgmental or covered with what I call the quickie prayer. Lord, this is a really good job. I really like it. I hope it works out. I hope you give it to me. Thank you. Amen. That's, that's not praying about it. Lord, we really want to move here. This is a great house. This is what we've always wanted. Just pray your blessed. Oh, look, they accepted our offer. I've said many times before, just because they offer you the job doesn't mean it's God's will. Just because they accept your offer on the house doesn't mean it's God's will. Then people usually get frustrated and say, well, how am I supposed to know God's will then? By praying and seeking the Lord. It's not about the world accepting you or them accepting the offer. It's about the Lord and your heart saying, this is what I've called you to do. And I'm telling you right now, it's a lot of work to know God's will. Not because God is trying to hide his will from us, because he knows the more time we spend with him, seeking and searching him, the closer we are. Look at verse 16. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. To say that you know what's best for your life is to boast and be arrogant, because you're saying, I know more than the Lord. That's really what it comes down to. It's not your plan. It's God's plan. The Tower of Babel, they had a plan. Build a tower to heaven. We're make a name for ourselves. And we're not going to get scattered abroad. God says, no. I got a plan for you. I will scatter you because it's what's best. And I know what's best supposed to happen. God's way is always the best way. It truly is. Keep that in the back of your mind. Anybody have any questions, comments here? Brian. And that's an interesting phrase there because what there is is what, uh, what Ryan is referring to is there's this Hebrew word for God called Elohim. And when you look at it, it's actually the plural version 
of just being God. God would just be El, E-L. And so when you have Elohim, it's considering it being a plural. So when you see phrases like us, it's obviously referring to more than one. And so a lot of people, when they see that Elohim there, that they're referring to the Lord in this plural form, which would be a case for the Trinity there. So God, obviously, when he does things, he does things as a triune nature. And I think that's something that's very important to remember. And you see hints of that at the beginning of Genesis, which Ryan just made reference there to, about let us make man in our image. And if you look throughout the entire Bible, uh, the Spirit was involved in creation, Jesus was involved in creation, obviously God the Father was involved in creation. This is the interesting thing about the Trinity, is if you look for the Trinity, it's all over the Bible. I mean, it truly is. But what happens is people don't want to accept that teaching, and so they try to make these cases left and right, and I guess to me, when I see studies like this, I just start thinking, how obvious is it? I think God's just trying to make something obvious there. So, good point there on the Elohim that needs to be mentioned. Anybody else have anything they want to say here before we close up? All right. Let's pray and we'll let you go. Just don't forget, 25th No Church and also the 1st No Church. Just a quick reminder about that. Fellowship meal has been moved to the 8th of January then. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, good to be here. Thank you for this time. And Lord, a simple prayer. Um, help us to truly seek you. Not, not what we want, but what you want, Lord. You know what's best for us. Make it clear, make it evident, show that to us, and help us to walk in that path. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week, and God bless.